Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as Director of News at New Lines Magazine, which is now a co-host and co-sponsor of Foreign Office. Uh, this week, I'm joined by my friend James Rushton. Uh, you may know him from Twitter. <laughs> God, I hate saying that. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, uh, what is it? Jimmy Sec UK? Jimmy Sec UK. Um, so I, we were just discussing offline. I've known James. He's an independent foreign policy national security analyst, but I've known him for years because um, we both followed the Syrian civil war quite closely, and he was one of a now growing collective of open source Intel analysts who just kind of would find these videos of, and, you know, post snarky memes or comment on them. And, and what I found, particularly uh, in the case of this war in Ukraine, is that open source analysis has done a far better job of setting the pace for how this campaign was going to go. It was out front basically saying that Russian losses are not sustainable at the rate they're going, a visual confirmation of claims that were coming from either side, including the Ukrainian side, which some often traffics in propaganda and, and makes allegations that cannot be confirmed. Open source sort of filled that void. And so, Jimmy, it's great to have you on. And the reason I wanted to bring you on is you did a, a bit of analysis on a question that um, I and many others uh, who have been watching this war, which has now entered the third month, uh, have had, which is um, what has the West given Ukraine, particularly in terms of heavy weaponry and equipment that they've been asking for, not just since February 24th, but for the last eight years, including, you know, NATO standard artillery systems, uh, air defense systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so you published this great uh, analysis for us at New Lines Institute, which is affiliated with the magazine, but separate from the magazine. And I, I just want to open up to you um, from, from your understanding, um, you know, I mean, I've been talking to the Ukrainians since the start of this thing. And it was, you know, we appreciate the solidarity from the West. We certainly appreciate sanctions. Yes, we appreciate the Javelin and Enlaw anti-tank systems, which have been put to remarkably good use on the battlefield. But in order to really defend ourselves and win this thing, we need heavy kit. We need howitzers. We need, you know, more tanks. We need aircraft, that whole, you know, kind of hot potato debacle about the, the MiG-29s from Poland. From your perspective, and you have a very kind of granular understanding of all of these weapon systems and how they can be used to great effect, are the Ukrainians now getting what they need? And if they are, uh, do they need other things that we should be providing them? And, you know, if, if we should, who can do it, namely which countries? Sure. Um, well, it's a start. Uh, I'll, say, I'll say that. It's definitely a start. I think that the most important thing that we've sent the Ukrainians were two, two most important things. We've firstly, mainly the Poles um, have sent them uh, 240 at least uh, T-72 tanks. Mm -hmm. And then the Americans and uh, as well as uh, small donations from the Australians and the Canadians, uh, M777 howitzers, very effective um, state-of-the-art towed artillery pieces. Um, and obviously that's a great start. Um, but they've been very clear that they will need more and they'll need continuing support. And they'll also need some of the systems that we haven't been giving them so far. So with the exception of the Slovakian uh, S-300 long-range surface-to-air missile system, we haven't really been providing them with, with any uh, long-range air defence systems. Uh, we haven't been providing them with uh, aircraft, which is, you know, in any modern conflict, air power is, is, is critical. And, um, you know, they've been making very good use of their TB2 drones. Um, 
But I think one thing that I would say is that if you look at the recent footage of the bombing strike on Snake Island, right? Yeah. And you looked at those two Ukrainian Su-27s coming in and the amount of destructive firepower that they could unleash within a couple of seconds. And then you compare it to some of the footage of the TB2s. Because the, the, the difference in destructive capability between a manned platform and one of those TB2 drones, which are great, but they're quite small and they, they're limited in, in, in mm. the sort of, uh, firepower that they can, they can deploy. They need air power. Um, we've given them, well, we've helped them with spare parts in order to get, according to the Pentagon, 20 more airframes uh, operations. Yeah, this is, this is a kind of interesting sort of yeah. angle as well, because when this was announced, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Admiral Kirby, Pentagon spokesperson, who said, yeah, that we've given the Ukrainian spare parts and 20 additional MiG-29s. And he, he, yeah, a lot he to refer to new airframes, which got everyone thinking, well, wait, did the Poles, did the Slovakians provide these things? These are Soviet era, um, you know, multi-role fighter jets, basically. And then the, the clarification came, no, 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 we've just allowed them to refurbish old planes and get them up and running. But in effect, it's the same thing, 20 new aircraft that are now operational, right? right. Yes. It's, you know, if, if there's 20 new aircraft in the air or 20 refurbished aircraft in the air, it's still an increase of 20 units over what they right. had before. And if we believe the Pentagon um, that they have now more aircraft flying than I think it was the, the previous month, um, that's obviously fantastic news. But they are going to need more. Um, they're going to need more aircraft um, because if we assume that this war is going to last for minimum months, possibly a year, a year or two, worst case scenario, a couple of years, they are going to run out. And yeah. even if we start supplying them with all of the MiG-29s in, you know, ex-Warsaw Pact NATO members' inventories, mm -hmm. they're still going to run out. So we're going to need to pick a NATO uh, aircraft, um, probably something like the F-16, start training them on it and, um, you know, start sending them over. Because we're going to have to rebuild their air force at the end of the war. Right. Um, and they're not going to be able to get new ex-Soviet aircraft from Russia, obviously. Um, and the, the supplies for these aircraft are going to be limited. Um, a lot of the munitions are going to be limited because although you can convert these, these old, uh, older Soviet, ex-Soviet jets to fire NATO munitions, it's uh, not massively straightforward and it's, it's, it's quite complex. And, by the time you've invested that money, you might as well just give them, you know, the, the yeah. NATO plan. Now, I mean, you know, th there was this whole debate when the Ukrainian Air Force tweeted, we need F-16s and F-15s, and everyone's like, oh, they rolled their eyes. You can't, you can't train up a pilot on these, these airframes within the space of a few weeks. It takes months, I think, what, three months, four months? The three months, I think, is, is a realistic figure. To, but, then if you, but then if you talk to, you know, guys who've actually flown these aircraft, they'll tell you, well, look, you know, you can be basically competent in three months, but it can take years to become proficient and to be, you know, cool. do the kind of you know, combat sorties that they'll need to do. But I mean, it's like we, we end up spending more time debating what they should get if yeah. we'd actually sent it to them in February, they'd at least be broadly competent on these platforms now, uh, such that they would gain invaluable experience flying them and, and engaging Russian aircraft and bombing Russian targets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. yeah. yeah. And, and also, I, th I think um, the, the obvious major caveat here is that we don't have access to perfect information. There right. might be something like this happening behind the scenes, but it might be something that 
for, for obvious reasons, we don't want to broadcast. So if that's happening, fantastic. If it's not happening, then why isn't it happening? And right. we need to be a lot more foresighted. The, the same the same issue arises with um, with tanks to to a lesser degree because there are very large infantries of ex-Soviet uh, armored vehicles in you know ex-Warsaw Pact NATO members inventories uh, like the the two hundred and forty T seventy twos that the Poles have got probably the same again plus another two hundred of yeah those roughly the same models plus their indigenous modification of the T seventy two which is the uh pt91 twardy which is a nice tank um x so uh, again it's a post modification upgraded um but really we probably should be picking a nato main battle tank and training them on it and starting to put in place the logistics chain to enable them to supply it and maintain it and use it effectively because again at the end of the war we're going to want to rebuild their army and it makes perfect sense for them to use NATO standard equipment, at least a lot of NATO standard equipment. Not well, and also, I mean, if, if the Ukrainians have become so adept at destroying T-72 tanks that are manned by the Russians using, you know, fire and forget anti-tank systems, then presumably the Russians can do the same with these T-72s, right? And as the NATO standard tank, you know, what were the, the Abrams, the Leopard, the Challenger, are these are all with the ceramic plates. I mean, I, I'm not technically adroit in, in explaining this yeah, stuff, but yeah, it seems like they can withstand these things better. Can, yeah. I mean, the, the, the main problem with the, the Soviet tanks with the autoloaders is that um, when they have a hit, they uh, cook off uh, catastrophically. So all the ammunition goes up and that's, yeah. what, that's why the turrets do the famous separation right. from the body of the tank. Um, and in NATO tanks, uh, the ammunition is stored in special compartments that have blow-off valves. So if the ammunition does explode, it blows out rather than ah, up. Got it. Um, uh, so that's, they, you know, NATO tanks are still vulnerable. Um, if you look at the uh, Iraq war, um, and if you look at uh, the ISIL insurgency, and then the fights between the Kurdish Peshmerga and the Iraqi security forces, the Kurdish Peshmerga apparently knocked out two Iraqi Abrams with um, Milan anti-tank missiles. Hmm. Um, so, it, it, you know, NATO armor is not, you know, impervious. Oh, to yeah. Systems. Well, then there were the uh, the, the Iranian-made, um, what were they called? The those uh, penetrator bombs that kind of cut through NATO okay. armor. The shake charges. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're all. I mean, yeah, they're all vulnerable to these things. The, the main thing with with uh, tanks is that any tank, if you use it incorrectly, is going to be vulnerable. Tanks right. need to be correctly supported with infantry, with artillery, with air, and also obviously reconnaissance. You need to know where the enemy is, and you need to know where you're sending the tank, and you need to know. It sounds it sounds ridiculously simple, but you need to know which direction to point the tank. Right. If you look at a lot of the footage coming out from recent days, um, you'll see Russian armored vehicles getting hit by uh, Ukrainian. Uh, anti-tank missiles pointing them on direction so the anti-tank missiles are hitting them in the rear or the side of the tank where the armor is most vulnerable because they don't have the intelligence they don't know right. where where the ukrainians are um so yeah it, you know all, all tanks can be vulnerable um the, these ex-soviet tanks are particularly vulnerable to these catastrophic uh cook-offs where where the mm. ammunition just goes up so crew survivability is not is not great 
And it seems like, you know, there's sort of a, a leveling up in Western arms provisions to Ukraine. You know, we start with these sort of mobile defense devices, the fire and forget systems, and now we're going to be giving them artillery, self-propelled and, and so on. And I mean, look, uh, I forget what the metrics are here, but they've trained up uh, over 100 Ukrainian trainers in Germany, I believe, on how to use these howitzer systems. We've already seen visual confirmation that, you know, the self-propelled stuff is now like headed toward Odessa. It's only a matter of time before we start seeing these things in use. If we haven't already, there's probably been some videos that I'm not even familiar with where they're destroying Russian armor with it. The more successful they get, the more or the more they, they exhibit their success, the more they will get from the West, right? I mean, it's, this is not just a game of moral solidarity and sympathy for a victim of a, you know, unprovoked war of aggression. They need to show that they can use this stuff to... to of, of course, and also yeah. um, they, they need to show that they're winning, right? Yeah. Um, probably the most crucial thing, like it, it was the German, um, I think it was German, one of the German ministers or foreign minister, when Kiev phoned him up on... Um, the end of February, they they told him that you know there's no point in sending help because you'll be you'll be conquered in three days. Um, mm-hmm. but the Ukrainians obviously proved him massively wrong, and also they've been very adept at using Western weapon systems. They you know they're incredibly smart guys. They they there's an anecdote that I read. Um, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about the previous employment of some uh, American provided radar systems counter. Uh, battery radar systems in the Donbass. Um, this was before the latest invasion. Um, but they said that, that when the American trainers came back, the Ukrainians were teaching <laughs> the Americans how to do things with their own equipment because they, you know, uh, there's a Darwinian process in conflict that, that it forces sure. to adapt. And sure. if you're not put under that stress, sometimes you just won't find out these little quirks of the equipment that it can do certain things or, it, you know, it has these extra capabilities that you might not have considered because yeah and there's like a diy element to all of this as well isn't it? i mean yeah. they have a drone army or a, a, an army of drone um targeters and, and technicians that were essentially hobby drone hobbyist yeah. you know kind of buying drones off amazon or in radio shack or whatever and now they're they're outfitting them with what molotov cocktails grenades and they're actually taking out heavy russian equipment right. with yeah yeah and they're doing it very effectively as well um they are without doubt they are the most cost effect, effective weapon systems on the battlefield um you know the the cost of the drones vary in estimates but they're probably around twenty thousand to thirty thousand dollars and they can carry three anti-tank grenades and they can kill three <laughs> russian armored vehicles uh worth two million for a russian state-of-the-art yeah battle tank you know a hundred thousand for a bmp3 and you know that the, the the morale effect on the Russians of these drones just appearing because you you know you you were I'm sure you you were in Iraq and you you knew how scared the Iraqi security forces were of these ISIL drones when they this ISIL pioneered the uh, you know the tactic in Mosul that you can't hear these drones when they're about 300 feet up you just they're completely silent and all of a sudden boom and these they attack at night as well using thermal imaging cameras. So they're absolutely terrifying. I remember in uh, in in Syria and then also in Turkey, um, sitting in Antakya with a bunch of free Syrian army rebels who were literally scrolling through Amazon what they could buy drone wise, where they could either conduct surveillance and reconnaissance of the enemy, or yeah, you know, can we strap a grenade on one of these things and just let it fly? So yeah, I mean this. You know, having kind of an element of both a conventional defending military mixed with an insurgency 
has has done really well for the Ukrainians, it seems, um, which is why they, they frankly, you know, the argument they say half in jest, but I think half earnestly is, you know what, give us the F-15 and F-16s and you'll be surprised at what we can do with these things. <laughs> you know, I mean, whether it's strip them for, I don't know, the munitions and transform them into some kind of adaptive technology or whatever. I mean, this is a nation of IT specialists and engineers, you know, um, Yes, it's, it's quite a young nation as well. I think yeah. that's what a lot of us forget is, is the population is quite young. And yeah. I, I think a lot of people were surprised about how effective their you know, information war strategy was. But we shouldn't be because they're, you know, they're, they've grown up with this kind of social media technology and, you know, the interconnectivity of the world. And most yeah. of them, or at least a lot of them speak English and they can, they're very, uh, you know, adept at getting their message out. And it doesn't hurt the messages you know, it's, it's probably the, the clearest um, moral conflict in, in since the Second World War. There's, yeah, know, I mean, there's no there's no disputing that Russia has lost the narrative here. I mean, they'll they, even internally they're acknowledging it. Um, GRU guys are saying we screwed up. I mean, there's no psychological operation we can effectively wage, at least in the West, against the Russian population is a different story, which I think they're now falling back on because, you know, like Victory Day today, which I wanted to talk to you about just in terms of you know, the optics of that, it seemed a bit anticlimactic, uh, not just a bit, a yeah. lot anticlimactic, you know, no mass mobilization, no all on declaration of war, the famed annual air show did not materialize, citing bad weather, even though there were clear skies over Moscow. Um, and, and I think and some of the T-14s just clunked out, R2-D2 style, fell down on their side yeah. or whatever, <laughs> you know. And with the, with the aircraft, they had uh, rain last year and they had... Well, there you go. So there you go. the the excuse does not. Yeah, it, it. I mean, some of the most fascinating kind of threads that I've seen. I'm sure you you know. I forget his name, but the the tire shaman, the guy, the military tire. Yeah, I mean, it's just it. You know, literally zooming into a Russian military vehicle with with tires that are at least thirty years old, probably older, that are stamped "Made in the USSR" in English on the side. Right. And that explains so much of how this kid is just kind of completely collapsed, got stuck in the mud, been abandoned, whatever. Um, and then the electronic aspect of this war, too. You know, um, the deputy defense minister, Vladimir Gavrilov, told me two weeks ago, everything we've shot out of the sky, precision guided munitions, uh, UAVs, fixed wing, rotary wing aircraft, when we open it up, the guts 80 to 90% of the guts of these things come from one of two places, the United States or the European Union. Literally, you can read in English the parts. The Russians cannot manufacture this stuff themselves, which means as time goes on, I mean, there's so many cliches in this war. You know, the, the, the clock is not on Ukraine's side. Well, in a, in a manner of speaking, it is because their economy is being borne aloft by the international community, or at least some of it. They're getting limitless supplies of, of weaponry and bigger and better and more advanced systems. Mm-hmm. And as far as electronics and dual use stuff, there's no sanctions preventing them from collecting this stuff. But Russia is, you know, their military industrial complex is shrinking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you come back to the what you said about the teardown of some of their equipment, um, if you look at their all on 10 UAVs, right, if you open them up, they have a Canon uh, D20 camera literally just just a camera inside it stapled it's a point and shoot camera because they can't produce the optics they they, yeah. they just don't have a, a manufacturing high-tech manufacturing industry that's capable of producing the these optics so that's why when you see russian drone footage published on, on twitter or telegram or wherever 
it's always poor quality, whereas the Ukrainian drone quality is crystal clear. And that's not just, you know, good for us that are interested in analysing the conflict, but there's obviously serious operational issues. If Russians, if your drone footage is not clear, it means you can't can't see see what the enemy is doing. So your, your, you know, your artillery strikes are going to be um, imprecise and you you just can't get a clear idea of of what the enemy is doing. Um, And yeah, talking about time being on the Russian side, I don't, I don't see that at all. I mean, like you said, the Ukrainians are being supported by the Americans, the British, the Germans, the Japanese are incredibly pro-Ukrainian, which was a surprise to me. Um, Although I don't know that much about Japan, but it was, the very Italians cool. are very outspokenly pro you. Draghi apparently is the only Western European leader who is banging on about um, Ukraine joining the European Union. I was yeah. shocked when I heard that. Yeah. Um, and also, um, you know, it's coming back to the, you know, the Second World War analogy with the Lend-Lease. That they, you know, that was, that's a deliberate analogy. And hmm? during the Second World War, as soon as America entered the war and started supplying the UK, the UK was always come out last Germany because... If you've got the Americans on your side and you've got that essentially infinite supply of materiel and then men when they you know kinetically enter the war you are not going to lose right. really it's yeah. going to be very difficult for you to lose anyway assuming the political will persists and the supplies keep coming I mean we're going to have yeah, an election yeah. here in less yeah. than years you know and it could go yeah I should way. yeah I probably shouldn't have said that it's probably yeah no, it's all right, because what you, assuming things, there is a yeah. status quo politically, um, inshallah. But uh, the other question I want to ask you, and this is something I get asked all the time, because yes, you know, we've all seen the footage of Russian battlefield losses, risible incompetence and lost equipment or destroyed equipment on the Russian side. But on the Ukrainian side, there's a question, what are their losses, right? We don't really have a handle on their military casualties um, you know, Oryx, who's kind of the go-to visual confirmer of everything, he does have a section of Ukrainian uh, yeah. uh, military equipment losses. Um, but do you have a sense, like, what is the ratio here? I mean, for every Russian soldier taken off the chessboard, either killed or injured, or, you know, he's deserted or defected, how many on the Ukrainian side? It's really difficult to say. Um yeah. And now, is it difficult to say, obviously, the Ukrainians don't acknowledge this for morale purposes, but also the the Russians are a bit shy, or maybe they're just not shy, they just don't have the, as you say, the the visual footage, the the propaganda to put out there, because they're not actually whacking Ukrainians at a a high rate, you know? Well, Um, yeah, when they do kill Ukrainians, you, you will see it on the pro-Russian Telegraph channels. Um, you won't see it published mainly on, on Twitter because a lot of the pro-Russian accounts have been taken down for spreading, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy theories about Butcher. Um, yeah. But you will see it on Telegram. Um, but we've seen indications that they they aren't seeing the numbers of Ukrainian casualties that they would like to. For example, they've been... Uh, reposing Ukrainian bodies in different positions in at least two cases that I've seen. Um, you know, they've taken the poor, some poor Ukrainian guy that's died and they've moved him around the battlefield to give the impression that there, there are more Ukrainians have died than, than, than actually have. So it, it, there is, I, you know, I don't think Ukrainians have been taking this, the same sort of casualties that the Russians have, for sure. I think they've been taking casualties. Obviously, I think they've been taking more casualties than they prepared to admit. Hmm. But I think a lot of those casualties were probably 
territorial defence in the first stages of the invasion. Um, there was a very good um, Royal United Services Institute report about the first stage of the invasion where yeah. it says that the Ukrainians were using mass to uh, slow up the Russian advance early in the invasion before they could get that themselves organised. Um, so I, I think Oryx is fantastic, by the way. He, the work he does is brilliant. It gives us a fantastic baseline. I do think that the argument that Ukrainians are less likely to take pictures of their own lost vehicles, there is there is an element of truth to that, but there is also the the, the, the territorial control can't lie, right? Yeah. It's, we're not seeing masses of Ukrainian vehicles destroyed because the Russians are not destroying masses of Ukrainian vehicles and then advancing into the territory where those Ukrainian vehicles were once you know, occupying. Right. So, and that tells a story of its own. It, it, it says that regardless of the losses that Ukrainians are taking, they're still doing better than the Russians. They're pushing the Russians back. Um, and, and the Russians have got their own, you know, propaganda, you know, yeah. teams, and they, they've got their own, you know, boosters on Twitter and on Telegram that will show destroyed Ukrainian tanks, that will show destroyed, uh, you know, captured equipment as well and we've seen that we've seen we've seen them parading sure. captured western material as well um and laws we've seen them capturing a few javelins um but not not significant numbers really um, but it's also interesting because you know the, the the russian sort of line of communication is a bit more scattered or atomized than the ukrainian one i mean for instance let's talk about snake island which is yeah. this this little, you know, island in, in the Black Sea, which became famous at the start of the war, which is the Moskva, the flagship, yeah. you know, a, a battleship of the Black, uh, Black Sea fleet um, was approaching. And that was where these defenders famously said, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. <laughs> then the, the Ukrainians sank the Moskva a couple of weeks ago. And now it seems like they have, I mean, you know, it's there's conflicting information, but this gets to my point. Wagner, the mercenary corps, says on Telegram that um, it's been a complete rout and the Russian garrison on Snake Island is gone using, the Ukrainians use the TV2s, they use the uh, the SU, what was it, 24, you said? Yeah. Um, but the Russian, uh, you know, sort of stands on Twitter, pro-Russian stands will say, no, 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 actually it was the Ukrainians trying to mount a, a, a landing on Snake Island and all of this stuff. So even the Russian side, like, the, the you know the the mercenary guys are saying actually no we got we got fucked here <laughs> you know um, can you explain what is the significance strategically of Snake Island or is this more just a symbolic victory for the Ukrainians? Well, it's it's very strategic for the Russians to control it because if the Russians control Snake Island, not only do they have um, a base of operations uh, theoretically very close to the Ukrainian coast in which they can deploy special forces or they could deploy um, air defense assets or um, you know, a variety of electronic warfare radars, um, you know, pretty much anything um, that they would want to use to uh, help enforce the blockade of Odessa, um, to help enforce uh, an amphibious landing, if at any point that they're going to, that they would attempt one. Um, so it, for the Russians, it's strategic. For the Ukrainians, it's more strategic that the Russians aren't there. So. Right. This is this is partly why I don't think the Russian claims make that much sense that the Ukrainians would want to actually take it because then there seems no sense for the Ukrainians to actually put men on Snake Island at this point. Who could they, be captured or killed, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. There's there's no cover there. They they 
the, the Russians would probably do exactly the same thing the Ukrainians did, which was bomb them on the island because the Russians still have fast air and you know surface surface warships and you know cruise missiles they could use against the island. So it makes no sense to me that it would have been Ukrainians trying to retake it. The all the footage that we've seen um, starting on the 27th of April, the Ukrainians started systematically reducing the Russian forces on the island. Yeah, uh, they destroyed a Strela 10 uh, surface air missile system. And then a couple of tour surface air missile systems, and then there was the they destroyed four of the little Raptor class patrol boats, and probably ferrying supplies to the to or from the island. Um, and then they destroyed the landing craft, and then obviously there was the airstrike with the two Su-27s dropping bombs on the um, command center and some of the accommodation Russian accommodation blocks on the island. Um, yeah. And then obviously the the Mi the Mia that was. Uh, killed by a, a TP2 when it was dropping off a, a Russian special force team. Um, so this protects Odessa from any kind of amphibious assault. And um, what, where do you see, I mean, you know, Mariupol is largely under Russian control, but still not completely fallen to Russia because the uh, Azovstal metallurgic factory, which I think is what, four Huge. miles. Yeah. It's enormous. It's like a small city. I think it's, it's larger than, than most of the city of Venice, right? Yeah, um, Venice, yeah. And it's, you know, it's got underground tunnels and corridors. It seems like civilians have been evacuated successfully. And now you've just got a couple hundred defenders, Azov Battalion, the very controversial, you know, group and the Marines. They did a, a, a conference call with international media, I believe, yesterday in which they mm-hmm. it was it was very poignant and sad. This is their farewell. Right. I mean, they, they don't think they're going to survive because when the Russians come in, that's it. They're not taking prisoners of this. Yet it still stands. They have not managed to penetrate or to to take as uh the the factory i mean it seems that based on western government assessments and reporting the russians are removing their battalion tactical groups from mariupol so making it less secure could the ukrainians have they got the wherewithal have they got the manpower and the firepower to essentially mount a counteroffensive to regain uh, mariupol or are they now just completely focused in Donbass, the northeast, the Kharkiv region. I mean, give me your sort of way. Yeah, I mean, they, they might at some point, but it's just it's just too far inside Russian held territory for that to work, unfortunately. Mm. And it's too close to uh, the Russian border, and it's an area of the country where the Russian air force operates pretty much with impunity around mm. there um, as well. So, unfortunately, uh, yeah it's that's not going to happen um uh, although you know the like you were saying that they're in these bunkers and they're apparently they were designed to survive a nuclear strike you would think that if that's the case if they would have their own sources of water um you would think that they would also have significant stocks of food and in in that regard you know the civilians getting out also helps the defenders right because right. there are less there are resources to consume yeah. exactly so um, that's good in that regard as well, as well as just from a humanitarian uh, perspective. That's that's good. So, yeah, uh, it's it is sad, um, but they've, you know, they've fought uh, an incredibly brave battle, and they have undoubtedly uh, tied up a a large chunk of the Russian force that has, you know, that would otherwise have been deployed elsewhere. So. Mm. I'm pretty sure they knew what was going to happen. I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that that was 
you know, when a wall, a full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine was always, Mariupol was always going to be surrounded, it was probably always going to be taken, and that's why they prepared the Avastal facility as their Alamo. But mm. unfortunately, we all know what happened at the Alamo. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but you, you, we are seeing pretty significant gains in Kharkiv. I mean, the Russians are being pressed back almost to the border, right? I mean, do you think from there they can, you know, mount a, a, an incursion to try and retake Izium and then from there push further down and eastward? I mean, in Kyiv a month ago, there was a sense, and you know, one can call it false optimism, bravado, whatever, that the Ukrainians feel they can actually recapture territory that they lost in 2014. So, you know, even if they lose Mariupol, even if Putin gets his land bridge from Russia to Crimea, you know, the Ukrainians think actually we can we can whack them in in the LDNR areas um, because they're very attrited already. There's a lot of battlefield fatigue. That's the area uh, that the U.S. assessment today came out and said mid-level commanders are simply not obeying orders from the generals and whoever is, is giving them these orders. So, you know, one of the theories that, that's been bandied about is why are the Ukrainians performing so poorly? Well, you've got institutional corruption, um, just the kind of skimming from the till in terms of the military budget and leading to uh, deficient equipment. You've got bad morale, people who didn't really want to fight this war. But there's also a, a sneaking theory that this could be acts of sabotage. Um, you know, we can credit the Ukrainians with certain kinetic operations inside Russian territory, particularly Belgograd. But I mean, recruitment centers in Russia being set alight seem to be more homegrown. Yeah. Unless the Ukrainians are really getting creative and sending people deep into, I think I've seen some, some footage from Siberia or, you know, Perm or whatever. Like, what do you, what do you make of this, that, that there could be Russians who are essentially defectors in place? Uh, yeah. Well, there was a, there was, you're right. There was a big fire at the Perm powder yeah. factory. Um, and it's difficult to know whether, because there are a lot of fires in Russia anyway, and it's difficult to know whether this is a result of sabotage, whether they are, you know, they're, they're short, short of munitions, so they're working double shifts and they're pushing, you know, they may be letting safety slammers, which aren't particularly great in Russia anyway, but they're letting safety slammers drop even further, or it's, it's sabotage. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of these fires and uh, the, the ones that are further away from the border, they still look, suspicious and i think one of the things that the ukrainians have done really well is that they haven't claimed any of these strikes really they've just nodded and winked at some of them right but you know that that adds to a, a kind of a sense of paranoia you know whenever any of these fires happen is is it a ukrainian agent or is it just right. something you know well uh, and you know the ukrainians you know we, we we hear a lot about two services the military intelligence Gur, and the sbu the domestic security service but Ukraine has also got a foreign intelligence service, which does what all foreign intelligence services do, which is recruit spies and agents. And, yep. you know, I mean, who knows what they're really getting up to in Russia? I mean, you've got a lot of Russians with with Ukrainian heritage or who have family in Ukraine who can't all be thrilled insofar as they're getting credible information about this war with what they're seeing. Um so, yeah, I mean, it is, but I, I agree. I mean, it's clever to, to kind of take a leaf from the Israeli playbook of we neither confirm nor deny. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We've, we've bombed something. Um, yeah, it's very clever. And also, um, especially uh, around um, the attacks across the board from Kharkiv, 
in Bogorod, um, the Russians have been playing them down themselves because they don't want to admit that, um, in some cases, they don't want to admit that the Ukrainians have actually struck their facilities. So it's almost like that the both sides are agreeing, but you know, to not make a big deal of it. Um, yeah. And for the Russians, it kind of helps maybe to, because the, regi the regime doesn't want to look weak. They don't want to look like the Ukrainians have, have hit them, but then they also want, uh, you know, they want to, it, it's weird. It's like a kind of, a, it's a dance almost between yeah. the two sides and that, that there's, there's this element of, well, we know you did it, you know we did it, but no one really wants to admit it. Well, it's like, well, you know, those nuclear scientists in Iran who blew up on motorcycles and, yeah. you know, the Iranians yeah. didn't say the Israelis <laughs> done it because that makes them look silly. And the Israelis, you know, exactly. they don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Jimmy, I, we've run out of time, but uh, I want to thank you for doing that analysis. It's, it's circulated widely. I've been getting emails about it because it's exactly the kind of thing, you know, it just answers some pretty fundamental and basic questions, but you, you kind of synthesize it all really well. And unfortunately, it's already out of date because no doubt they're getting new things they've asked for. And, you know, we should try to keep it rolling and dynamic and we can update it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, business. it's a wonderful problem to have, but it goes out of date really quickly because it means that the, you know, Western countries are getting more stuff. Yeah. Sending more heavy weapons. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we must have you back. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll be tweeting at you within 15 minutes of <laughs> stopping this recording shall we do now um thanks for listening this is michael weiss uh director of special investigations at free rush foundation my guest is uh, this week was jimmy rushton he's an independent uh foreign policy and national security analyst and you can follow him on twitter at jimmy sec s-e-c uk um for all the latest on ukraine uh, thanks for listening bye <laughs>